We're going to read together from Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, um, we're going to read the whole chapter together. Uh, this um, chapter uh, recounts for us the amazing events that took place after the Israelites had escaped from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they had uh, left uh, Egypt and they were making their way uh, towards the Red Sea. Um, and uh, this chapter tells us what happened next. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, it not, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood between them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove, back, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amen. This is God's word. May he bless it to us. But just as we turn to God's word, let's bow our heads and pray for a moment. Father, we are so conscious that as we turn to your word just now, we do so in total dependence on you. And so we pray for your mercy and help, that you'd bless us and that we'd hear your voice speaking to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Over our services uh, this weekend together, um, I'd like us to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. Um, and um, obviously, with just three services, there's, um, there's an awful lot that we're going to have to miss out. But I want us to, to think a little bit about, about the great story of the Old Testament and how all of it is fitting together to point us towards Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to uh, look at some key moments uh, uh, related to the lives of some key individuals that we have uh, revealed to us in the Old Testament. Tonight, we're going to be spending some time uh, looking at Exodus 14 and everything uh, that happened around uh, the life of Moses. On Sunday morning, God willing, uh, we'll be looking at David. And then on Sunday evening, um, we will look at Jeremiah. And I hope that as we do that, we'll just get... um, We'll maybe be reminded um, of, of some of the key ways in which um, all the events in the Old Testament fit together and point us uh, towards Jesus. And we want to do that because we want to make sure that we understand how all these big things fit together. And we want to see how they point towards the coming of Jesus Christ in the new. As I said, tonight we'll be looking at uh, Exodus 14. Let me read again verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I want us just to ask four very simple questions. We're we're diving into the second book of the Bible, and we're about a third of the way through that book. And if we're thinking about the big story of the Old Testament, we need to start by asking, what's the story so far? And then we're going to ask the question, what's the story at this point? Then we're going to ask, what's the bigger story? And then last of all, we're going to ask, what does it mean for your story? 
What's the story so far? What's the story at this point? What's the bigger story? What does it mean for your story? You go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. You have the magnificent description of God's creation of the universe and of humanity. And everything there is good. God forms this beautiful world to be a home for us as his people. It's a magnificent description of order and potential and purpose. It's a place where humanity has the extraordinary privilege and the profound responsibility of bearing the image of God and serving him. But from that beautiful starting point in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, tragedy follows in Genesis 3. Humanity rebels against God by sinning. And the result of that is what we call the fall. Creation becomes disordered. Humanity becomes disorientated. And harmony and community are replaced with suffering and hostility. And above all, the close communion that we enjoy with God has been broken. And that means that by the time you get to Genesis 4, and as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see um, very clearly that creation, uh, that creation and humanity, whilst still in many ways beautiful, is now very, very broken. And what that means is that from Genesis chapter 3, through the whole of the rest of the Bible, in fact, through the whole of the rest of history, um, the story is in the context of a conflict narrative. <coughs> conflict is at the heart of everything that's going on. And ultimately, that's because the kingdom of God is being opposed by the kingdom of evil. And humanity is completely caught up in the midst of that conflict. And that, of course, is why it's the case that for every human who has ever lived, life is a struggle and a battle. And one of the most important things that we have to recognize is that in that conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil, there is no neutral ground. Humanity is either in fellowship with God or in rebellion against God. There's no third option. And you don't need to read very far past Genesis 3 to see all the consequences of that. If you read Genesis chapters 4 to 11, the whole thing just becomes more and more chaotic. Humanity becomes horribly hostile towards God and towards one another. And so by the time you reach the end of Genesis 11, the clear message of scripture is that everything is broken. But the amazing thing is that from Genesis 12 onwards, you see the start of God's plan of restoration. And the whole of the Old Testament is the story of how God is not giving up on his creation and he's not giving up on his people. And you see this plan of restoration being implemented bit by bit from Genesis 12 onwards. It starts with Abraham, a key figure in Old Testament history, a key figure in world history. He's chosen by God, called by him uh, to a new life. And he's given wonderful promises by God. And central to those promises is a family. He's told that he's going to be the family of a, the father of a great nation. And that God's purposes are going to be fulfilled through that nation. You see that set out so clearly in Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. These are three of the most important verses in the Old Testament. The Lord said to Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if you read on in Abraham's life, one of the things that you discover very quickly is that he has done nothing to deserve any of it. Everything that God does with Abraham is a result of God's grace. All the promises made to Abraham are grounded on that grace. And that's why uh, you'll often hear people call those promises the covenant of grace. God comes to Abraham and gives him wonderful, precious promises that he's done nothing to deserve. So, from that point with Abraham... What's happened between then and Exodus 14, the passage that we read? Well, two immensely important things have happened. First, Abraham's family has grown into a nation. And so Abraham did eventually have a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son called Jacob. And Jacob was given a new name by God. He was given the name Israel. Jacob, as I'm sure you may remember, had 12 sons. They went on to have many descendants and they all became part of one big family nation that was named after Jacob's other name. They were called the Israelites. And by the time you reach Exodus 14, the Abraham-Isaac-Jacob family is huge. It's become a nation. But we must never forget that it was still a family. Sometimes when we hear the word Israel today, we tend to think of a geopolitical nation like like every other nation in the world. And that's true for today, that's what Israel is today. But when you see the word Israel in the Old Testament, the first thing that you should be thinking of is a family. We're talking about a family nation. So that's the first thing that happened between Genesis 12 and Exodus 14. The family went from just a wee family to a big nation. The second thing that happened was that the family went from prosperity to slavery. So Abraham was rich. He was well off. He had flocks and herds, gold, and silver, camels, donkeys, servants. And that prosperity continued through Isaac and through Jacob. And Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, as I'm sure you remember, actually reached the very top of the civil service in Egypt. By, um, by that time, the family had done well. But towards the end of Jacob's life, there was severe famine in the land where he lived. And that forced them to travel to Egypt. And when they arrived there, they were given an area of land called Goshen, to live in. And that takes you to the end of Genesis and everything is looking good. However, Exodus tells us what happens during the next 1400 years. Let me read the first few verses of Exodus chapter 1. You can flick back over if you want um, or you can just listen as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king of Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Now you may remember that in Abraham's lifetime, God had told him that this was going to happen. That his descendants would be afflicted for 400 years. And the rest of Exodus tells us the dramatic account of how God did indeed judge the the Egyptians. How he raised up Moses, he confronted Pharaoh, and he led the Israelites out of slavery and into freedom. So that's the story so far. What about at this point? What happens in Exodus 14? Well, this is describing one of the most famous and dramatic moments uh, in the whole Exodus from Egypt. After a long struggle between Moses and Pharaoh and the awful plagues that had been provoked by Pharaoh's resistance, finally the Israelites were allowed to leave and they escaped. But no sooner had they departed when Pharaoh changed his mind and he sent his army in pursuit uh, of the Israelites. And here in Exodus 14, the Israelites are cornered. They've got the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians have caught up behind them. And in the midst of that impossible situation, God saves them by parting the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites are able to escape. The Egyptians are drowned as they try to pursue them. It's an amazing moment. God miraculously intervenes to save his people. But what I want to do is just focus in a little bit more detail uh, on verses 10 to 14 because these verses are highlighting three crucial aspects of how God's saving plan works. First of all, you see in these verses that the people who are being saved by God are totally helpless. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember we've been saying that the whole of the Old Testament is uh, in the context of a conflict narrative between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. That spiritual conflict frequently manifested itself in physical conflicts which were a common feature in Old Testament history. And that threat of conflict is very much apparent here. You have the most powerful army on earth bearing down on these runaway slaves. And on the face of it, Israel looked doomed. Egypt is incredibly powerful. Israel is utterly helpless. And that tells us an incredibly important lesson. It tells us that God does not save them because they're strong. Secondly, we see is that the people being saved by God aren't just helpless, they're also foolish. Look at verse 11 and 12. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The hopeless situation that they're confronted with them means that their confidence just vanishes. So much so that they're already thinking, we'd have been better off as slaves, we'd have been better off staying in Egypt. And that's a pattern that will repeat itself throughout Israel's exodus journey. Whenever they're faced with difficult circumstances, they keep thinking that they'd have been far better off 
if they had stayed as slaves. And in doing so, they're showing us that they're incredibly foolish. Because they're foolish because they always seem ready to choose permanent slavery over temporary challenges. And the point that this emphasizes is that the Israelites whom God is rescuing out of Egypt, they're not a godly, religiously impressive nation. Not at all. They were a mess. Abraham was a man of great faith. His descendants are nothing like him. They were constantly doubting God. They were desperate to find other idols that they could worship. And they were forever making very foolish choices. And that means that God does not save them because they're worthy. And then the third thing we see is that the people who have been saved by God don't actually have to do anything. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're among the Israelites here. You've been walking all day and all night. You had the excitement, the thrill of escaping Egypt. You're thinking, we're free at last. You grab as much as you can and you head for the wilderness. You've escaped. You've got your family with you. You've got your relatives with you. And it's all really exciting. But, but now you come to the sea. Reality sets in and you think, what are we going to do now? Where do we go? What's going to happen? And all the time you're thinking, are the Egyptians going to catch us? You come to the sea. You've got your, your family, your elderly parents, your children with you. You're tired. You're hungry. You're looking to Moses, waiting to find out what you're supposed to do. And then in the distance you hear a rumbling. And over the horizon, you see Egyptian chariots, and quickly you realize that there's hundreds of them. And they're swarming towards your location on the shore. Imagine what people would start to say to you. They would say, let's get out of here, but which way do you go? You're stuck. They'd say, let's try and fight. No, we can't. We'll never beat them. Let's run, but there's nowhere to go. No, let's surrender. What should we do? And Moses stands up and he says, you don't need to do anything. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Israelites do nothing. God does it all. And if, as we read from verse 15 onwards, we see how God miraculously delivers these people. If you had been standing in the Israelite camp, watching the Egyptians hurtling towards you, you'd have said to yourself, we are dead. But the outcome of it all is that it's the Egyptians that perish. The Israelites are saved. And it's all entirely down to what God does. And it's summed up so perfectly in the very last verse of the chapter Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God is the one who acts. That means that the Israelites are not saved through anything that they do. They're not saved because they're strong. They're actually helpless. 
They're not saved because they're worthy. They're actually foolish. And they're not saved because of anything they do. They actually don't do anything in order to receive salvation. Now, there's loads of really important lessons here. One of the things that we've got to recognise here is that it's showing us just how broken humanity actually is. It's so easy when we think of sin to think of sin as kind of this slightly naughty thing that has slightly spoiled the world. It's a bit less than ideal. It's kind of broken humanity. But actually, if we just get our act together, if we sort ourselves out, then we can probably uh, put things right. That's what many of the world religion, world's religions say. That's how many people approach God, thinking, yeah, things aren't quite right, but I'm pretty sure I can fix it. And when we come to the Old Testament, it's very easy to think, you know, that the Israelites were kind of the good guys. They were the ones who were better than all the other nations. And yes, they had their issues, but they're not as bad as the rest. And that's why God liked them, because they weren't too bad. We have got to recognize that that's totally wrong. It's a totally inaccurate understanding of the Israelites and of humanity. The Israelites in the Exodus and in the whole of the Old Testament were a mess. They were not the best of a bad bunch. They were not pretty good with just a few wobbles. They were not a model of faithfulness or godliness. They were a broken mess. And that's because the whole of humanity is a broken mess. And the Israelites were no different. Sin has wrecked humanity. And the horror of things like famine and slavery and deception, violence and conflict and all the other terrible things that we see in the world around us and that we see happening between Genesis 3 and Exodus 14 and the rest of history are all showing us that humanity is in an awful state. And we come to today in Scotland in 2022 and it's exactly the same. And the result of that is that humanity desperately needs to be rescued. And this is where we see that it, Exodus 14 reveals a massively important aspect of how God's saving plan works. You may remember that at the start we spoke a little bit about Abraham and we said that uh, one of the key things that's revealed in God's dealings with Abraham is God's grace. The fact that Abraham does nothing to deserve what he gets, God graciously comes to him and gives him so many precious promises. And that grace is also on display here in the Exodus because the Israelites don't deserve anything. They are not worthy um, and they're completely reliant on God's initiative, his mercy and his grace. But alongside that grace, there's another crucial thing revealed in this passage regarding God's salvation, a crucial aspect of God's redemptive plan, a key word. It's in verse 31. I want you to see if you can choose what it is. You don't need to tell me. You can just have it in your mind. The key word in verse 31 that this whole chapter is revealing is the word power. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used. And what I want us to recognize is that if anyone is going to be rescued from danger, then these two things are absolutely essential. Grace and power. Imagine that you're stuck in a storm at sea and you're hanging on to a capsized boat, hanging on for dear life, almost about to perish. And then all of a sudden the helicopter appears and the winchman comes down and reaches you. At that moment, he doesn't say to you, can I just clarify that you're worthy of this rescue? And that you're going to cover the costs. 
He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't say that because of grace. Because he's not coming to ask any questions. He's not coming to assess whether or not you're worthy of rescue or not. He's just coming to get you. And when he reaches you, he doesn't say, here's a rope. I hope you're strong enough to climb up. He doesn't do that at all. He puts a harness around you and then 5,000 horsepower of helicopter winches you to safety. You are rescued because of grace and power. And what it's telling us is that if we are going to be saved, we need a rescuer who has the grace to be willing to save you and the power to actually be able to do it. That's how a rescue works, and that's exactly what God does here. He rescues the Israelites because he's a God of grace. It's got nothing to do with whether or not they deserve it. And he delivers them to safety in an astounding demonstration of his power. But all of that can still leave us asking, well, what does that matter? You know, this is all ancient history. It's great that the Israelites got saved. It's great that, you know, that all that happened. But why is the liberation of an ancient and relatively insignificant tribe from captivity in Northeast Africa important to us? Well, that takes us to our third question. What is the bigger story? What's all of this pointing to? We're saying all along that the Old Testament is the story of a conflict narrative. The kingdom of God in opposition to the kingdom of evil. That's what the fall, the events of Genesis 3 um, caused. It brought humanity under the grip of sin and evil. And what that basically means is that Old Testament history is generally uh, something that you can summarize in terms of a downward trajectory. So whenever you think of the Old Testament, you should be thinking of a kind of a line that starts off good, but just goes down, 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 down. Now, along the way, there's a few positive blips, and we'll maybe see some more of them uh, over the weekend. But the general trajectory of Old Testament history is not positive. It's negative. But the key point is that in all of that failure, in all of that brokenness, God does not give up. In the midst of all the failures that we see, in the history of Abraham's descendants and in everything that happened after that, there are moments of hope. The trajectory is downwards, but there are glimmers of hope along the way. And the key figures that you have in the Old Testament are, are the moments of hope. You have Abraham, you have Moses, you have David, uh, and you have others. And the key point is that all of these are telling us something. They're telling us something about how God's plan of salvation is going to work. In the Old Testament, the pool of sin is too strong. And in the great conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil, it's not the kingdom of God that's winning. And you can easily think to yourself, well, that doesn't sound very good to say that. You know, we're saying in the Old Testament, God's not winning. Well, it shouldn't surprise us. Because in the Old Testament, God is not actually trying to give us a series of successes where people triumph in the face of evil. What God is trying to give us in the Old Testament is a series of signposts pointing forward to what God is really going to do. They're all pointing forward to Jesus. 
And that's definitely true of the passage that we have before us here. It's a signpost pointing us forward to what God is going to do for his people through Jesus. Slavery in Egypt is pointing us towards the fact that we are slaves to sin and that we need to be rescued. The weakness and foolishness of the Israelites is showing us that we cannot save ourselves because we're exactly the same. And the extraordinary power demonstrated in Exodus 14 is telling us that when it comes to saving you, Jesus will do whatever it takes. When Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Those words aren't ultimately fulfilled on the shores of the Red Sea. They're ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. That is exactly what he has come to do. He's come to reach us. He's come to rescue us. Hebrews 2 sums it up so magnificently when it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In his death and resurrection, the conflict narrative changes forever. The kingdom of evil is defeated and Jesus is exalted as king and head over all. And for every broken, fearful, enslaved human who trusts in him, we are set free. And he accomplishes it all through grace and power. Grace to reach sinners in their deepest need. Power that can overcome everything that the kingdom of evil can throw at him. But last of all, what does it mean for your story? Exodus 14 happened about 3,400 years ago. How does this have any relevance to your life and mine? Well, I think there's lots of things that are relevant to us. Because Exodus is showing us the inescapable reality of our situation as a human race and it's showing us some of the fundamental truths of how salvation works. And I, want, I hope that we can see this because it's going to teach us some of the most important lessons that we can ever learn. And I want to leave you um, with three or four just to think about as we close. What's Exodus teaching us? First of all, it's teaching us that we need to recognize that, that you can forget about religious neutrality because it doesn't exist. Now, this is incredibly important because the majority of people think that they can be relig- religiously neutral. And people can think, you know, yes, I'm not going to be particularly over the top in my commitment to God, but I'm not against it. I'm neutral. I'm in the middle. Neutral ground doesn't exist. In a conflict narrative, there's no third side. We're either with God or against him. We're either in Christ or outside. We're either safe or lost. There's no third way. Spiritual neutrality can never be your story. And if you think that it is... um, Please just 
please just think about what I'm saying and about what scripture reveals. That's the first crucial lesson. Second thing that we need to recognize um, is that sin is not a moment of fun or a kind of like a naughty indulgence. Sin is brutal slavery. The whole point of, of, of Israel's slavery in Egypt is to point us to be a signpost teaching us that. That sin is, is nothing but brutal slavery. And it's crucial that we remember that so that when, when the devil dangles an attractive sin in front of you, whether that's to do with money or power or sex or gossip or drink or status or revenge or whatever it may be that he dangles in front of you to tempt you, what we've got to recognize is that he is not doing that to give you a little bit of pleasure because following God is dull. The devil's doing that to enslave you. But one of the best tricks, best tactics that he uses to enslave us is to make you think that you can be master. That's the way the devil will so often um, enslave us to sin. He'll do it by making us think that we can be master. It's exactly what happens. You know, we, we think to ourselves, I, I can just have one more drink. I can just have one more. It'll be fine. I, I can just have one more look at that website. I know I shouldn't, but I can just have one more. I, I, I just, I've got this bit of news. I just read it this time. I'm just going to say it because, you know, I think I'll just pass it on. And this time, I'm just not going to forgive. I am not going to forgive that person for what they did. I, just this one time, I am not going to forgive. And we think that by doing that, we can pick things up and put them down, that we can dabble with sin. And we do that because the devil is convincing us that we are the master. But what we've got to recognize is that if you cannot go a day without, without, without feeding a sinful habit, if you can't encounter someone's mistakes without, without getting angry or bitter, if you can't work with somebody without having that urge to be better than them, if you can't control these sins or whatever other sins we struggle, if you can't control the things that you think that you can pick up and put down, then you've got to ask yourself, am I the master or am I the slave? And Paul teaches a very, very solemn lesson about that in relation to this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me just read it. It's just four or five verses. It's just short. Um, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's Exodus 14. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed um, from them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Not everybody learned the lesson that God was teaching in Exodus 14. And some of them thought that they could continue desiring evil. They thought that they could be the master, but they just returned to slavery. So we've got to make sure that we, we recognize how brutal sin is. We also need to recognize that Jesus is offering you freedom. Jesus wants you to be free, free from sin, free from fear, free from death. Now that doesn't mean 
freedom to do whatever you like because freedom never means doing whatever you like. The freedom Jesus offers you is freedom to be everything that he created you to be. And one of the best illustrations I ever heard of that was when I heard someone uh, preaching and they were speaking about a steam engine and they said that a steam engine is an incredible piece of engineering. And I love steam engines. You look at them and they're so magnificent. They're enormous, huge wheels, everything connected together. You see the steam belching out of the funnel. It's so impressive. But imagine you took a steam engine and you put it on a beach. It would look pathetic. It wouldn't be able to go anywhere or do anything. It would be stuck. But if you take that steam engine and you put it on the rails that it was made for, then it thrives. It will roar through the countryside. It can go anywhere. That's, that's a wonderful description of, of the difference between following the commandments that God gives to us and ignoring them. Everyone that God has created is even more magnificent than a steam engine but we are so quick to run down to the beach and get bogged down in all sorts of nonsense. Whereas if we follow, follow his commandments, listen to his voice, then we thrive. Humanity thrives when we live the way God creates us to be. And all of this is a wonderful reminder that Christianity is not slavery. Christianity is not slavery. And any presentation of Christianity that implies that it's slavery is a counterfeit. As Christians, in everything that you do this week, whether you're at work, at home, in the community, at school, studying, whatever it may be, God does not want you to be his slave. He wants you to thrive as you live for him. So we're learning that you can forget about religious neutrality. We're learning that God, uh, that sin is brutal slavery. We're learning that Jesus is offering us freedom. And all of these things are the things that we want to remind ourselves of as we think and prepare to come uh, to the Lord's table. But the most important thing that I want you to remember and to take away tonight is the fact that no matter who you are, no matter how much you feel you've stuffed up in your life, no matter how bleak you might feel your circumstances are, no matter how great you might feel your mistakes are, God has enough grace and enough power to save you. God has enough grace and enough power to save you. Do you feel weak and helpless? Do you feel foolish and unworthy? Do you feel like you've got nothing to, that you can offer, nothing that you can do? Well, right now God is saying to you, I will fight for you. And all you have to do is be silent. And in that silence, think about the cross. Think about Jesus conquering the kingdom of evil. Think about Jesus crying out in agony as he took all the burden and punishment for our sins. Think about Jesus as his body becomes more and more broken. Think about Jesus 
as his breath becomes slower and slower. Think about Jesus as he cries out to his father because he feels forsaken. Think about all of that because it's there that you will see just how much the Lord will fight for you. And all we have to do is come to him and hold out our empty hands. And in his abundant grace and in his immeasurable power, he will do the rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of grace and of power. And we marvel at your actions on the shores of the Red Sea in delivering your people from the Egyptians. But we, we recognize that that's just a signpost pointing us to the great and ultimate victory that you've accomplished through your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for, for your amazing grace and for your astonishing power and that you are using that to save us. Help us all to see and understand that. And please lead us all closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close um, singing from the Scottish Psalter and Psalm 107 on page 382. Psalm 107 on page 382, singing from the beginning. Praise God, for he is good, for still his mercies lasting be. Let God's redeemed say so, whom he from the enemy's hand did free. Down to verse 8. O oh, that men to the Lord would give praise for his goodness then and for his works of wonder done unto the sons of men. These verses, verses 1 to 8 of Psalm 107, to God's praise. Praise God for
Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.